believe it was Charles Darwin who said that a false fact is highly injurious. And that may sound like a um, paradox, how can anything be a fact and false? But I take it that what Darwin meant is that it's highly injurious to, he was thinking of science, but I think we can say this for anything, to have things taken to be facts, taken to be established, taken to be the data which other theories must account for, which are in fact false. Now this happens in science, but it also happens in other fields, including biblical studies. Something will be stated as just a fact, just a, a data point, and it will be passed along. And new scholars will not go back and check and say, where did that idea come from? Is that really true? And they will just pass it along. In the series I'm doing right now on the Gospel of John, and especially John's reportage of Jesus' words, I'm going to be tackling some of these false facts that have made their way into Johannine studies and New Testament studies. The one I'm tackling today I call the myth of the sock puppet Jesus. Now you know what a sock puppet is if you're on the internet. It's not just an alias, but it's a second persona that a person creates for himself, which he wants people to think is definitely separate from himself so that he can use that separate persona to seemingly support his own ideas. Sometimes a person in his sack puppet will even have a, a phony dialogue right within the same social media thread. That's classic sock puppetry. So the, the myth of the sock puppet Jesus is that John uses Jesus as a kind of sock puppet, that he puts his own interpretations of Jesus teachings, which he thinks are true and accurate interpretations, into the mouth of the historical Jesus and sort of makes Jesus appear to say them in his own gospels. Gospel, when actually these are extrapolations, elaborations, interpretations of his own upon the things that the historical Jesus taught. And for this reason, so goes the idea, um, the sock puppet Jesus in John sounds an awful lot like the narrator in John because it's really the same person, which is something of the way that you might uh, detect a sock puppet on social media. Now, bolstering this is one of those false facts. And here's how the false fact goes. You may have heard this claim if you're interested in reading about the Gospel of John. It often happens in the Gospel of John that we cannot tell whether Jesus is speaking or whether the narrator is speaking. That this happens frequently, okay? Um, and you'll run into this, and one scholar after another will repeat it. Um, I'm not going to name this scholar, but there was someone who eventually endorsed my, my book on John, and he was pushing this a little bit in correspondence with me. Um, and I said, well, you know, actually that's not true. There's only one time in the Gospel of John that one is uh, in some difficulty about telling whether it's the narrator or Jesus speaking. And after he looked into it, thought about it some more, to, very much to his credit, he came back and he said, and these were his exact words, I had drunk the Kool-Aid. Okay, so it was a false fact 
that he had heard and accepted. And then when I challenged it and said that it is not true, he acknowledged that and, and saw that this was something he was just passing on from others. Now, you may be curious, what is that one time? Well, that one time in the entire gospel where it is difficult to tell is actually John 3, the famous dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, now, as, as you probably know, quotation marks are not found in, in ancient Greek documents. Quotation marks are added in translations, and they are uh, an editorial addition to, to make things clear. And I'm not saying that this is um, highly dubious or something, but and often there's no question about where the quotation marks go. But in this chapter, there, there is. So Jesus starts speaking. Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? That's John 3.10. And then it, it goes on for a while to verse 21. And then verse 22 starts the, the narrative again about um, Jesus' baptizing ministry where his disciples baptized in Judea. So the question is, is Jesus talking all the way from verses 10 to 21? Or at some point, is it, it just stops being Jesus, we should put the quotation marks earlier, and uh, it's the narrator then offering his, uh, you know, his further thoughts on the same topic. Um, I'm noticing here in my uh, NASB, it puts the quotation marks all the way to the end of verse 21, which is possible. I'd be inclined to put the quotation marks somewhat earlier, but I would really be guessing possibly after verse 13. And then that would mean that the most beloved verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, not that it doesn't belong there, but that it is um, spoken by John, the narrator, rather than having been spoken by Jesus, that God so loved the world and so forth. But again, that's, that's a guess. Maybe Jesus is still talking through verse 21. That is literally the only place. But you will hear and you will read and scholars will repeat. There are often places where there are many places where it's hard to tell whether Jesus or the narrator is speaking or hard to tell whether where Jesus leaves off and the narrator picks up and that kind of thing. Um, this has made it into some of the most highly respected commentaries on the, the Gospel of John, and it's a false fact. Um, just to complete the evidence here, there are two places where it is somewhat ambiguous concerning John the Baptist, where John the Baptist leaves off and uh, the narrator begins. But that doesn't really play into the sock puppet Jesus narrative particularly, because the whole point of the sack puppet Jesus is that John supposedly thought, well, you know, I'm an apostle, so when I speak, it's just like if Jesus spoke, so um, it doesn't matter if I put it in the mouth of the historical Jesus. And that same consideration wouldn't apply uh, to John the Baptist. In fact, what you will find is uh, Christian scholars who want to kind of, kind of give some credence to this notion that Jesus is uh, saying things that in John's gospel that he didn't really historically say. They'll say, well, but John thought that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they'll take the notion of inspiration and the idea that John accepted inspiration 
to mean that it, you know, he thought it was fine if he made it look like Jesus said something that uh, Jesus didn't really say and that was really his own interpretation. Um, so if it's, it's only one time, why do people say that? Well, partly they say it because other people say it. People just take in each other's laundry and they just, they just copy what each other say and they don't check it. It's also partly because of something I'll be addressing in subsequent uh, videos, which is the concept of Johannine idiom. Uh, and they'll put together and not distinguish things which need to be distinguished. Um, the claim that it's often hard to tell where Jesus stops and John picks up, which is just straightforwardly false, with the claim that even when it's clear that Jesus is speaking, he has a sort of accent which is supposed to be similar to the accent of the evangelist John. And that's sometimes known as Yohanid idiom. But notice that those are actually different claims. Those are not distinguished. And because people are not careful to distinguish them, they'll just pass on without checking this idea that it's clear that <clears throat> uh, John, is Jesus, uh, John is using Jesus as a sack puppet because it's often hard to tell who's talking. And that's not true. But for the rest of this video, instead of going to the topic of Yohanine idiom, which I'm going to be treating carefully in later videos, what I want to do is talk about some alternative evidence, some counter evidence that debunks the idea of the, the sock puppet Jesus and debunks the idea, even in general, that John thought it was okay to put his own interpretations into the mouth of Jesus. I want to start by reading uh, a quotation from an article by uh, D.A. Carson, which I'll try to, I believe it's free online if I recall correctly, and I'll try to link that in the show notes if I remember. So it starts like this. If in one passage John does not make it clear where Jesus stops and he begins, that is of course the John 3 passage, in virtually every other case there is no ambiguity at all about where John expects his readers to see Jesus' words finishing. And I would say every other case doesn't even need the word virtually there. More important, says Carson, there is quite substantial evidence not only that Jesus spoke cryptically at times and that his cryptic utterances were not properly understood until after his resurrection slash exaltation and descending of the paraclete, but also that John faithfully preserved the distinction between what Jesus said that was not understood and the understanding that finally came to the disciples much later and from but also to the word later there is actually in italics in Carson's own article. Then he gives several verse references, some of which I'll be discussing in a moment, to this and to evidence to this effect. He goes on, it is not at all obvious that John is confused on this matter. One might even argue plausibly that anyone who preserves this distinction so faithfully and explicitly is trying to gain credence for what he is saying. And if he errs in this matter, it will be because of an unconscious slip, not by design. And what he means by errs in this matter is just allowing it to be somewhat ambiguous as it is there in John 3, that he just didn't realize that there was an ambiguity there and in order to clarify it. But this is very important, and this is the evidence of the Johannine asides, as they're called. If you ever go to a play, 
especially a Shakespeare play or an older play like that. An aside is a place where it's like a parenthesis. The, the speaker is talking and then suddenly he'll pause and he'll sort of say something either to another character or possibly even to the audience. Maybe it explains what he's just been saying. There are several of these Johannine asides. I count five of the, the kind I'm about to describe. So one place where it's hard to tell and five places where John is extremely explicit to distinguish his own words from Jesus' words. And in other places, it's just by the use of he said or narrative or whatever that it's just completely obvious where Jesus stops talking. But there are these several places where John actually does explain Jesus' words. He does interpret what Jesus say, said. And he probably did think he was guided by the Holy Spirit. He probably did think he had apostolic authority to do that. But he was sufficiently confident in his authority that he didn't try to hide it. In fact, he pauses and he says, this is what Jesus meant by that. And I would note that, that if John were really confident that he had apostolic authority to interpret Jesus' words, there would be no need to hide that by, by pretending that it was Jesus saying it. So bear that in mind. All right, so let's talk about a few of these. So I said there were five. I'm going to um, put, the, put the references for the five Please message me, by the way, if I forget to put things in the show notes. You can message me on Facebook. Hey, you didn't put that thing in the show notes. And then I can go edit the show notes and include it. But my firm intention is to put the references for these five into the show notes. And I'm going to talk here about three. One of them occurs in John 2, uh, just after the temple cleansing. And Jesus has just cleansed the temple. The religious leaders are offended. They come to him and they say, show us a sign of your authority to do this. You know, who do you think you are, in other words? And show us a sign that we should think that you have this authority. And Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then the leaders comment on that. And they are incredulous, making it clear that they think he means the literal temple. The narrator then pauses, and in an aside, he says, he said this concerning the temple of his body. And then he says that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples understood and remembered what he had said. And that's the kind of thing Carson's talking about there. Now think about this. If, if John thought that it was perfectly fine and no problem to just smuggle in his own interpretations, to use Jesus as a sock puppet, put his own interpretations into the, the mouth of the historical Jesus, why didn't he do it here? For example, we have scenes in the Synoptic Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus later, what did you mean by that parable? What did you mean by that saying? And Jesus explains it to them in private. John could have crafted a scene like that here if he wanted to put into Jesus' mouth his interpretation, he clearly thinks his interpretation is right, but he gives it to you in his own voice rather than making it seem like the historical Jesus said it. That is evidence against that theory. It is evidence for the theory that John was scrupulous about distinguishing what the historical Jesus said 
from his own ideas of what he meant. Second one occurs in John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I have to resist going into more because this is a, a passage with a lot of evidence, just these few verses of John's historicity, but I'm not, I'm not going to. You will find the other evidence in the eye of the beholder, but here is just one piece of evidence. So now on the last day, the great day of the feast, this is John 7, 37, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You hear that aside? Okay, verse 39. Now John is not shy about reporting Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. There are many places, especially in the farewell discourse, where Jesus explicitly talks about the Holy Spirit to his disciples. So it's not as though John is trying to create some kind of artificial pattern where the historical Jesus never talks about the Holy Spirit explicitly. He does talk about him explicitly sometimes. But apparently, the way John remembered it, he didn't talk about him explicitly on that occasion, reported in John 7. So the evangelist thinks he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So what does he do? He pauses and explains it to them in an aside, explains it to his reader. Ah, what he meant by this, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who wasn't given yet. Okay, again, evidence that he's scrupulous to distinguish. And then the third one I'm going to discuss is in John 13. This is at the foot washing. So Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and you may remember that Peter argues with him. He says, oh no, you'll never wash my feet. He thinks that's beneath Jesus and sort of scandalous. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then, and then Peter goes the other extreme, being Peter, and he says, oh, in that case, wash my head and my hands also. And so then Jesus says, verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. By the way, the words of you, therefore, there are added uh, by the translator. It's you are clean, but not all, more literally. And then verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. There's another of those asides. Now, if you've got in the back of your head, but Jesus does mention <clears throat> at the Last Supper that one of them will betray him, yes. But John records more talk after it says, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? And he goes on and talks about this more through verse 20. And then it's not till verse 21 when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. <clears throat> so apparently as John remembered it, at this point when Jesus said, not all of you are clean, or you are clean, but not all, he didn't immediately say, for one of you will betray me. 
He didn't immediately explain what he meant by not all of you are clean in that way, or you are clean but not all. In fact, I believe, I'm willing to be corrected about this, but I believe that what Jesus says in verse 10 there could be interpreted to mean that Peter himself is not entirely clean. I did not check before I did this video, though, whether the you there is plural or not. So if it's plural, he does mean that not all of the disciples are clean. But again, does that mean that one of them is bad? Or does that mean that in, in their hearts they need further purification? That at least would be open, even if it's a plural. Um, so this is John's interpretation of what Jesus means when he says, you are clean, but not all. Okay, that he, he was thinking of Judas, who would betray him. Evidence, by the way, that Jesus did wash Judas's feet. This is another of those asides. Notice that John could have, especially since Jesus did say that on that night, he could have smushed those verses together, couldn't he? And just thrown in a because or a for. It wouldn't have even been that big of a change. You are clean, but not all. For, I know the one of you who will betray me. But he didn't do that. He scrupulously distinguished what Jesus said historically, as he recalled it, from his interpretation of it. Now, there are two more of these. And then there are other references which Carson alleges, and which I would allege, are further evidence of this distinction. And I don't want to go into that too much. But for example, when Jesus says, I have more to say to you, but you're not able to bear it now. But when the Spirit comes, he will teach it to you. That's not a, a license to pretend that the historical Jesus said something he didn't say. Quite to the contrary, that's a distinction between what he's teaching them historically and what the Spirit will teach them later. And the very fact that John reports it is evidence that John maintains that that is an important distinction. Okay, certainly not the kind of thing that he would be likely to make up Jesus saying if he was going to use Jesus as a sack puppet. So there's a lot of this counter evidence to this. So two points, two takeaway points. First, the statement, it is often hard to tell when Jesus is talking and when John is speaking in the gospel is false. It is not often hard to tell. There's literally only one place. And second, there is a variety of counter-evidence, including these five asides, where John distinguishes scrupulously between Jesus' words and his own interpretation. And that is counter-evidence to the idea that John considered himself licensed to put his own interpretations into Jesus' mouth. I want to close with an anecdote that's told in the book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. This was a book that was co-written or partly ghost-written for the physicist Richard Feynman, by a close friend of his, of funny stories. And you don't have to know physics to read it, which is fortunate because I don't know a lot of physics. In one of the chapters called The 7% Solution, Feynman tells a story about um, his and Murray Gell-Mann's discovery of a new law of what's called beta decay. No, I don't know what beta decay is, and you don't need to know either for the purpose of this story. They were trying to get at the proper laws of beta decay, <clears throat> they were finding that the data were all over the map and that it was hard to fit the data into a clear theory. Feynman had a theory in mind 
uh, which he shared with Gelman, or which he and Gelman shared. They, they both thought this theory was correct. But it didn't fit with something that had been taken previously to be true in the literature. My understanding is that it was a certain number that affected beta decay, and everybody was just like, this is the number. So it was one of those assumed facts in the literature. And that was part of what was causing the data not to fit. When Feynman came back from a trip to Brazil, he sat down with some of his friends and said, okay, bring me up to date. What's been going on with this beta decay thing? And they said, well, Gelman has suggested that that number might be this other number instead. And Feynman said, oh, then I understand everything. Because if you, if you change that number to something else, it, it caused everything to fall into place and to fit together. And then we got what was known as the Feynman-Gelman theory. So Feynman decided he was going to go back and he was going to check the literature. What was the original paper, experimental paper, that caused everybody to accept and that, that got just accepted uh, for this number that turned out to be the wrong number, that turned out to be false. And he found the paper, of course, no Google, he had to do some digging, and found the paper, and he said, I read that paper years ago, and I saw then that it didn't um, prove anything, that it was actually a, a weak argument for this. I didn't know that was the paper that was bolstering this up. I was just deferring to everybody who I thought was a better expert than I was about beta decay, and turns out they were just using this, um, this number on the basis of this really weak paper. Probably there was sort of a, I'm thinking, telephone game going on. One guy used that number, and then another guy saw him do it, used that number. I am hoping that this video and others will cause you to have what we might call a Feynman moment, when you will realize that you don't have to just accept something that's treated as data as data. You don't have to just accept it and then everything else has to explain it. A false fact is an injurious thing. And this idea that, that often it's hard to tell whether Jesus is speaking or whether the narrator is speaking is one of those false facts. We'll be seeing more in, in the series here as it goes on, more false facts. And this will give you the strength to say mentally, is that really true? Let me go back and check on that and see if it's really true. And that's part of what we're trying to do here at the Lydia McGrew channel. Thanks for watching.